Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. I rewrote my message this afternoon. So what's in your bulletin's wrong. Uh, Counting the cost of discipleship is the title. Um, You know, Paul counted the cost, didn't he? Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about how Paul was led by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. They said, you're going to be bound there. Kept hearing that over and over again. You're going to suffer there. Kept hearing it over and over again. He said, I'm willing to suffer and to die for the sake of Christ. Uh, I heard a story one time about D.L. Moody, and, and the person was kind of in a jealous way, was saying, what is this thing? You know, God's blessing D.L. Moody is, is, he got a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And the answer was, no, the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. <laughs> he was surrendered to the work of God. And each one of us needs to be surrendered to God's work in our lives. Luke is, is giving us several um, accounts and, and parables here in this chapter. Uh, and there's a theme that runs through this chapter of being called or invited or uh, uh, asked to participate in banquets and, and those kinds of things. And it's a theme throughout. And I believe Jesus, as he comes to this Pharisee's home, a leader of the Pharisees, and there's all these, quote, quote, important people gathered uh, to um, meet and have fellowship and, and enjoy a meal, uh, and yet they're waiting to trap Jesus. They're paying close attention to Jesus. And Jesus sees through all that. Uh, I probably wouldn't have actually even gone to the banquet if I'd have known everybody was out to get me. Uh, but Jesus loved the people that were there. And he was unwilling to uh, just let them go to the side, unwilling to just let them uh, go the road that they had chosen. Uh, He wanted to appeal to them to surrender themselves to to him and to the sake of the gospel. Um, Later on in the book of Acts, you you hear uh, that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I kind of wonder maybe if some of the seeds that were planted during this session of time that Jesus spent with these men uh, were bearing fruit later on in the book of Acts. I, I would like to think so. Uh, we do know that some Pharisees came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so counting the cost of discipleship, what might discipleship cost us? That's what we're going to talk about. What is discipleship? Well, the the word uh, disciple means learner. Uh, It is somebody who is in a growing, thriving, learning relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, I I was reading the book of Corinthians, and and it says that some will have rewards in heaven of gold, silver, and precious stones. Others will have wood, hay, and stubble. It'll be burned up, and they'll suffer loss. And some will be saved, though as by fire. That is, they'll get in there by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> you know, they're covered by the blood of Jesus, but they've got nothing really to show for it. Uh, so um, what is the cost of discipleship? If you're going to grow and you're going to learn and you're going to be an effective Christian, 
uh, what is the cost and the price for that? Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. And this will apply, uh, it's a challenge, really, to a group of people who are lost. Uh, but Jesus probably also has some disciples with him and so forth. So I think there are probably two audiences here. One is the lost people that Jesus is saying, look, I'm calling you to surrender. But then to the saved people, he's saying, listen, I'm calling you to surrender. This is what the invitation is. And he's going to go through different uh, things uh, that, that this surrender will apply to. Uh, and there's some secondary things that you'll, you'll, um, we, we'll skim over. We won't get to, all, to everything here uh, in the chapter. But I just want to point out these things about counting the cost of discipleship. Look with me at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them, he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into the well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answers. The second time Jesus has had to have a discussion about this. Um, then he says, he told him a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the best place for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't uh, recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the lowest place, so that when the one who invites you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When, those, uh, when one of those who had reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, uh, the one who eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. Then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and inviting many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, Come, because now everything is ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his slave, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the slave said, What you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the slave, go out into the highways and lanes and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if the salt lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Counting the cost of discipleship. Uh, what might discipleship cost us? Well, the first thing I want you to see is it might cost us our reputation. It might cost us our reputation. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you whose son or ox falls into the well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answer. Now, Yes, Jesus has shown, he's exposed the error of what they've said. He's asked them a question that they really can't answer. They've been shown that what they believe is in the wrong and that they should have been loving this man. And this is the second time that Jesus has told them. And Luke puts the, both of these things really close together so we can see, hey, Jesus has said this and he said it again. You ever done that with your kids? You said it, you said it again, you said it again, you said it again, you said it again. And they still don't get it. How many of you have ever done that yourself with your parents? I sure, you know, I have. So, uh, you know, this is, this is the idea. Jesus is, is trying to get through to them and to show them that loving people is more important than, uh, than all their ritual. But you see, they're unwilling to admit that they're wrong. There's pride there. They're concerned... They're the teachers. They're the, the uh, officials of the, uh, of the religion of Judaism. They're the, the cream of the crop in the eyes of the people, and they're unwilling to admit that they're wrong. They're unwilling to admit that this Jesus has said the right thing and that they're in the wrong. How many people are unwilling to follow God because of their reputation. They hold on to what other people think of them rather than what God thinks of them. Uh, be careful about that. Uh, if other people and what they think matter more to you than God matters to you, you're guilty of the sin of idolatry. You have put those people in the place of God. Jesus calls them uh, these repeated uh, statements uh, uh, to these people are Jesus is saying look you're you're wrong I'm calling you to repentance put your trust in me but they will not let go that reputation is too important make sure that reputation doesn't stand in the way of faithfulness to Jesus Christ uh, sometimes we go through these thoughts 
Well, I couldn't share Christ because somebody might think I'm a fanatic. And then what do we do at the football game? Act like a fanatic, right? Um, you see, we need to be willing to do what God tells us to do regardless of what people think. We need to be willing to take a stand on what we believe the Bible teaches is right and wrong, regardless of what people think. They may call us bigots. That has been said about Christians who believe the Bible. You believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? You're a bigot. Well, then I'll wear the badge. Our reputation, if the culture begins to look down its nose at, at biblical Christianity, God's people need to be willing to stand up. Our reputation shouldn't stand in the way of us following Jesus. Um, so, uh, as believers, we need to be willing to follow Jesus. Also, if you're an unbeliever, sometimes, this is, I'll speak from experience here because, um, People thought I was a Christian, and I was going to church, I knew what to say, I knew what to do. Uh, I'd gone through the baptismal waters, but my heart had not been changed, and I had not truly surrendered my heart to Christ. But in my mind, I thought, if I go forward, what will people think? That was on my mind. If I, I make this decision and make it public, what are people going to think of me? And so I, I had this internal struggle. Now, I don't know why I went through that internal struggle. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Most people be happy. If they're genuine Christians, they'd be happier saved, right? But I, for some reason, I had that struggle. Don't let reputation keep you out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So counting the cost of discipleship, what might it cost us? First thing is reputation. Second thing is position. Position. Now, Jesus is telling them this parable, and he's, he's emphasizing the need for humility and all of that. But look at verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best place for themselves. They loved the limelight. You ever known somebody that just loves the limelight? I mean, every chance they get, they just love to be in the center of it, right? The prima donna. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, they just love the limelight. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, they had an honored position, and, and they loved to be treated as an honored position should be treated. Um, sometimes people will show honor to a position even if they don't respect the person, right? I, there's a few people in the military I had to salute that I didn't have a whole lot of respect for. But uh, you honor the position. But But... They, this is what they delighted in. They delighted in their position. What if following Jesus meant taking a lower seat? What if following Jesus meant that I wouldn't get that promotion at work? What if following Jesus meant that instead of going to the bar to drink with the boss so that I could get an inroad to that promotion... I choose to do something else, and I miss the promotion. What if it costs me my position? What if I lose my job because I obey Christ? How important is my position to me? What if uh, my position uh, of, of popularity is affected? 
by following Jesus. You see, sometimes we may make decisions based on, can I keep this position? How much can I compromise? How much can I get out right to the edge of sin without sinning so that I can thrive and have the position that I want? Versus having the attitude of, how committed can I be to Christ to follow Him? Be careful of the, of the lure of position. Um, Jesus is watching them. He's observing them, and he's watching them. They're jockeying for position. You know, who's going to be in the most important seat? You know, And, and uh, I don't know if it's like watching those kids do that uh, thing they do at Bible school, you know, where they keep taking the chair out, and everybody's trying to jump in the chairs you know, and get them to the last minute, and there's one left. Uh, I, I kind of get a picture like that in my mind. It, I'm sure that they were more, had more decorum than that, but um, that was the idea. They were trying to get the right seat. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to have the right position. Sometimes I think uh, a certain job or a certain position in the community may be so important to us that we compromise who we are as believers. We need to never do that. If being obedient to Jesus means that I never realize that position that I've always wanted, then I need to. Put that aside and say yes to Jesus. Paul, when he left uh, the persecution of Christians and he became a Christian himself, he lost his position. He, he was respected. He was honored, probably a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, very, very well respected in Judaism. He went from being respected to being hated. He lost his position. And you know what he said? I count all that, but rubbish that I might gain Christ. I want to tell you something. Jesus is better than any position you could ever have. He's better. Don't let position keep you from walking that path of discipleship with Jesus. Um, don't let it keep you from coming to Christ either. Uh, be willing to surrender your position. Counting the cost of discipleship, what might it cost us? Reputation, position, thirdly, our selfishness. Our selfishness. Look at verse 12. Jesus sees through all the political garbage here. Um, he says to the one who invited him, uh, when you give, this is the host, the, the Pharisee that invited Jesus to the meal. He says, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Hmm, I wonder why he's inviting the rich neighbors and not the poor neighbors. Hmm. Because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. You'll have a reward in heaven. You see, Jesus is not saying you can't invite your neighbors to a meal, okay? That's not, that's not the point. The point is the motive. What was the motive of his inviting all these important people? He wanted to get something out of it, right? Um, have you ever observed in high school the clique, you know, the, the popular clique? And then you've got the kids that want to be popular. And so they go, they try to associate with the popular kids so that they can boost their rep. 
You know what I'm saying? Y'all never seen that? Um, sometimes people do things for other people, and they have relationships with other people that has nothing to do with their real desire to have a relationship with that person. It is a simple using of that person for their own selfish ends. If I have a relationship with this person, this is what I get out of it. Jesus says you need to leave that selfishness behind. You can't be my disciple if your main goal is what you get out of it. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? You don't go to the church for what you get out of it. I realize you're the Sunday night crowd, but isn't that that the case? So many people, God, what can you do for me? Jesus said your motive needs to be a heart of love for these people. Now, later on he's going to talk about the poor, the lame, maimed, and the lame, and and the blind are the ones who come to the banquet with God. They're the one who have fellowship with God, and these others miss out. Isn't it ironic that people are looking for worldly benefit and selfish benefit, and they go to the wrong people for benefit? They should have went to those poor, maimed, and, and lame, and blind people because they knew Jesus. And, and they might have gotten something out of it that would have really helped them, a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you see... Jesus is calling them not to live for their own selfish ends, but to live with a true heart of love. Isn't that what they were called to? Even in the Old Testament, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But you see, they were doing these acts of kindness. Come to my house. Why? Because I want to come to your house. (laughs) I I, want to get something out of this. Hey, maybe I'll get a job if my rich neighbor comes to my, to my house and we eat together. We'll be big buds and, you know, it's all about selfishness. So, what's the point here? Jesus, Jesus is looking at the motive that he sees and he knows exactly what's going on. He says, look, your selfishness will keep you from being a disciple. You need to surrender your selfishness. And ask me to live through you that life of love that God has called us to. Now, if you're a Christian, we're called to that. Uh, and, and you can begin to grow in your walk with God when you surrender your will to minister to the people that other people aren't interested in ministering to. Now, by the way, all people need to be ministered to. Okay, Jesus isn't saying, just minister to the poor, don't minister to the rich. That's not what he's saying. Everybody needs Jesus. What Jesus is saying, don't let your motive be selfish interest. So, selfishness can keep you. I've been told by people before when I've talked to them about Jesus, um, you know, and I ask them, is this something you'd like to do right now? And they'll say, no. I say, well, is there there a reason why uh, that you wouldn't want to do that? And sometimes they'll tell me, yeah. I don't want to give up getting drunk on Friday night with my buddies. See, that selfish interest is keeping them from coming to Christ. So don't let selfishness keep you from coming to Christ, and don't let it keep you from growing in Christ if you're a believer. Counting the cost of discipleship. 
What might it be that it costs us? Reputation, uh, reputation, position, selfishness, excuses. It might cost us our excuses. Now, Jesus gives a parable of a banquet. The master is wanting to have fellowship with these people, and nobody wants to come. They keep making excuses. Well, I've got these. I bought bought these oxen. I can't come. I've got to go out and see them and do this. And well, I've got. I, I've got. Uh, I've just gotten married. I really don't have time to come to a banquet. Well, you know, and and they all have these different excuses that they're making for not coming to the banquet. And the master said, well, "Okay, well, you're not. You're just not going to." Benefit from the, the joy of participating in my banquet. How many of us miss out on fellowship with God because of our excuses? Miss out. Some people miss out on salvation because of excuses. Well, you know, I've got this and that and the other. It's funny how you, you, you I hear all kinds of excuses about why people can't come to church. And I've gotten kind of, I don't know if this is godly or not, but I've gotten kind of tired of hearing the I can worship God on the golf course excuse. That, that's one of my pet peeves. And I'll, sometimes I'll just say, well, you know, actually the Bible says you can't do that. You know, I tell them why. I usually don't like that too much. But um, people, people have all these excuses. And regardless of what the excuse is, if it keeps you from Jesus, you need to get rid of that excuse. Um, Jesus is saying... What, what excuses did the Pharisees have? They probably had a dozen excuses ready at hand for why they wouldn't want to repent and follow Jesus. Maybe there were excuses they told other people, or maybe they, maybe they didn't tell other people. Maybe they were just excuses in their own mind. And they, they made up these excuses. Well, I can't do it because of this, this, and this. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's uh, position. Maybe it's one of these other things. But I can't do it. And they have these excuses in their mind, and, it, and they miss out on enjoying the fellowship of God's presence. Don't miss out. Don't let your excuses keep you from growing in Jesus Christ. As a Christian, don't make excuses about missing your quiet time. Don't make excuses about not coming to church. Don't make excuses about why you can't do what God has called you to do. Say yes to Jesus. And grow and benefit from your time with him. Um, I heard a, a preacher one time tell me uh, this uh, couple in his church had um, been struggling with this certain issue. And they were telling boy, we just wish you would preach on this. And he said, I did preach on it last Sunday and you weren't there. See, they'd made some excuse and they'd missed out on the blessing. God's presence. And God was speaking directly to their need, but they missed it because of an excuse. Don't let the excuse keep you. Um, so, um, the cost of discipleship, what might it cost us? Reputation, position, selfishness, excuses, relationships. Relationships. Look at verse 25. Great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Wow. What in the world does that mean? Does Jesus want us to hate our family? 
Some of you are like, yes, that's what I wanted to hear. You know, it's like, uh, no, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, but that our love for him would be so great that all our other relationships would be like hate in comparison. In other words, we need to put Jesus first. He needs to be before our spouse. He needs to be before our parents. I can't tell you how many times I've heard an excuse. Well, my family member says they want to do this. That's my excuse for not coming. My, my, uh, my family is, is uncomfortable with me being participating in this. And they'll use their family as an excuse for why they're not. Now, if God doesn't lead you to do something, you don't need to do it. Okay? I'm not saying, I'm not trying to pressure you to do something that God doesn't want you to do. But if God tells you to do it, don't use family as an excuse. You need to put Jesus first. Um, <clears throat> our kids don't need to be our excuse. We don't need to put our relationships before Jesus. You know what it is when we put our relationships before Jesus? It's idolatry. It's sin of idolatry. We're saying my family is more important than Jesus. Our family's important. We need to love our families. We need to take care. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible about taking care of our family and loving our family, raising our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, loving our spouse, uh, all of that stuff. That's good. But they don't need to come before Jesus. That song, Excuses. The whole family had to stay home just to wipe that poor kid's nose. You know, it's a, uh, isn't that what we do sometimes? We use our family as an excuse. And um, don't, uh, don't do that. Uh, put Jesus first. What must the disciples' families have thought when they left? We know from the scripture that, that some of them were married. When they left and went from place to place to minister to the gospel, they were put in prison, they were beaten. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be the wife of one of the apostles and they come home and they've got scars all over their back? Maybe their face is marred from the lash. Uh, their body is broken. Maybe there's broken bones that have healed back. Somebody said Paul was a really funny-looking guy. He kind of bow-legged and, you know, hunched over. I, I think I'd be hunched over, too, all the persecution that he got. It, it, can you imagine what that must have been like for the families? There must have been times the wives didn't want to send their husbands off again. Well, do you think he could let the other apostle go to that one? Maybe stay home. Um, we're told today that many, many times the, the, the main hindrance and emotional problem that missionaries have in going to the mission field is their families don't want them to go. Well, they'll be far away from me. Selfish interest, isn't it? We just talked about that. Well, I won't be able to see them. It's such a, it's such a, a struggle. Can you imagine Zechariah when he is prophesying about Jesus at the temple? You remember, uh, not Zechariah, Simeon. He says, 
This child's destined to cause the rising and falling of many, and a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. Don't you love to hear stuff like that? <laughs> you, will, you will undergo grief. You will undergo hardship because you're the mother of the Messiah and because of what's going to happen in his life. He had the gift of encouragement, didn't he? Uh, but she did undergo incredible. She was at the cross. Can you imagine what it would be like to see your own child beaten the way Jesus was beaten? crown of thorns on his head, the nails through his hands and his feet, and he's, he's sitting there, one minute he's gasping for air, then he pushes up and, it, and the flesh is tearing in, in his feet and his hands. What, what kind of anguish would that cause a mother? I, I can't even imagine. But Jesus had, a, had been called to obey Christ. And so his family suffered as well along with him. Pray for the families of our church leaders. Can I tell you, the devil will attack them. Pray for the families of, of people out in, in our country that you see um, who are doing a good work for God because there will be difficulties in their family. We need to put our relationships second to Christ. It could be friendships. Well, my friends are doing this, so I can't do this, this thing for God. Uh, relationships need to come second to Jesus. So I've counted the cost of discipleship, <clears throat> reputation, position, selfishness, excuses, relationship. Next, opposition. Opposition. As I was looking at the definition for tower in verse 20, 28, the watchtower was something to defend against military attack. And it was a, it was a security thing. It was, it was to, to protect them from the enemy. And then Jesus uses the example of a king going to war. So they're building a watchtower. That's a military thing to do. They're, they're planning about a war, and Jesus says, you, you better count the cost before you try to do something you can't finish. In other words, there's, what price can you pay to try to defeat the King of kings and Lord of lords? There, there, was, there was nothing that they could do. Yes, they, they did pay money. They paid Judas 30 pieces of silver, but I'm sure that they, they paid the salaries of the of the. Uh, men with the clubs and so forth that went out to get Jesus in the garden. And, and they had organized their opposition to Jesus to try to catch him at the right time. Uh, they had gone behind Jesus when he died, and they, um, they, they actually uh, spread a rumor after his resurrection that the disciples had taken the body. They were just organizing opposition against Jesus, but it wasn't enough. They used their authority and their leadership to oppose Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, they must have thought that they had exceeded, or succeeded. But three days later, Jesus came out of the tomb. Wow. You can't defeat somebody who's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, what they should have done was sue for peace. 
<laughs> That's what they should have done. They should have bowed the knee before Jesus Christ and said, I surrender to you as my Lord. You see, in the middle of, of t- telling them about counting the cost, he gives these parables of the cost of following Jesus. What would be the cost of following Jesus? Well, give him, he's, look at what he says. He says uh, in verse 33, Therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye or surrender to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. In other words, they needed to be willing to surrender whatever they had, whatever resources they had, to follow Jesus. Instead, they were using their resources to oppose Jesus. He says, you need to surrender your resources to me. Jim Elliott uh, quoted somebody else, I forget who. He said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott did exactly that. He gave up the bright future that many people told him he was going to have um, to become a missionary and to go to an obscure tribe called the Aki Indians, and he ended up eventually giving his life as a martyr for the sake of the gospel. Um, He said, Lord, my life is not my own. I follow you. I surrender to your purpose. And you know the story how his wife came back and ended up winning many of those to the Lord. But, but Jim Elliott laid down his resources and his future and everything that he had and said, Jesus, I put all that aside to follow you. He, he was learning what it meant to be a disciple. So we need to surrender our opposition. Now, if you're lost, you're, you're in opposition to the things of God. You're pat. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an enemy of Jesus. Well, in your, in your thinking, in your attitude, you're, op, you're opposed to Christ. When Christ saves you, that will change. But you need to lay that down and say, Jesus, I surrender to you. As a Christian, sometimes we can find ourselves opposing God in more subtle ways. We, we oppose him by saying, no, I don't want to go your way, God. Um, So lay down your opposition, lay down your resources to follow Jesus. Counting the cost of discipleship, it might cost us reputation, position, selfishness, excuses, relationship, opposition, and finally influence. Look at verse 34. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Now, remember, Jesus is talking probably to among other people, but he's talking to the Pharisees. People of influence in their culture. But what were they doing? They were rejecting Jesus. Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus was the source of everything that God had to offer. And they were rejecting him. So what had happened was their salty position became unsalty. And because they rejected Jesus, their influence meant nothing. If they really wanted to have influence... They would bow the knee to Jesus and say, I surrender all and choose to follow him. 
I can tell you the name of a couple of Pharisees today. The one Paul studied under, Gamaliel, um, and uh, Nicodemus. I can tell you those two. One of them came to Christ. But I can tell you about Peter, James, John, Thomas, Bartholomew, uh, Simon, you know, all of them. Who made the difference? Who had the greatest influence? It, were the pe- it was the people who set aside the respect of the Jewish people at large to follow Jesus and follow him alone. And they turned the world upside down. Isn't that ironic? The people who thought they had the influence and were hanging on to it, gripping it with all they had, but rejecting Jesus lost their influence. But those who laid it down ended up having a profound impact in Christ. The cost of being a disciple. Are you willing? Am I willing? That's why I was convicted this afternoon. To lay all those things down and to say to Jesus, Lord, I surrender all to follow you. My position, the respect of other people, the possessions that I have, my own selfish interests, all of it, I surrender all to follow you. If you are, you will be a disciple. You will learn from Christ. You will grow in Christ. You will make a difference for Jesus Christ. If you say no, you won't make a difference. You won't make it. Let's just say it this way. You'll make a limited difference for Christ. If you say no as an unbeliever, you'll miss heaven and you'll end up in hell. Will you surrender? Father, thank you so much for telling us your story.